Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that every week we get to come into this place and have the privilege of hearing your word, hearing your voice, hearing you speak to your people, God. And Lord, I pray that you would stir us up, not only to delight in your word, God, but to obey it. God, we want to obey your word. We want to do what it says. And there are so many things that get in the way of us doing it joyfully. And so God, I pray that by your spirit, you would adjust our hearts. You would transform us, God. And give us not only a delight in you or a delight in aspects of what we experience in the church, Lord, but that we would delight in all of it, God all of what you call us to. Pray, Lord, that you would equip me to teach your word, Lord, according to your spirit, to communicate what you desire to say to your people today. God, if we're not to meet with you in this place, then all of this is pointless. And so, Lord, would you speak? And would we experience your presence? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church is, church is difficult. Church is hard. Why is church? Why is doing church? Why is church difficult? 
As much as we might love our church family and celebrate what God is doing in the church, as much as we might anticipate what God is going to do in the future in his plans for us, we have to admit the church is hard. If you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you know that he loves you and you know that church is hard. And yet Jesus and the New Testament have remarkable things to say about how beautiful and wonderful the church is. Has incredible things to say about all of the wonderful things that the church would do. Jesus actually said that the church would be so empowered by God's indwelling spirit that we would do greater things than he. He said in John 14 too, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now, just think about that for a second. Jesus, when he was on earth, was walking around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And as he did so, he cast out demons, he healed the sick, he cleansed lepers. And he said that all of his people, that his disciples, they would do the works that he did and greater works than these. Jesus told his disciples that it would be better if he were to go away. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Can you imagine the disciples seeing Jesus do all of these things and like think that he, he's the Messiah. He's the King of Israel. He's going to come establish the kingdom of God on earth. And he goes, guys, it's actually better if I'm not here. You don't need me. <laughs> it's better for you. It is advantageous for you if I go away because I'm going to send something better. Jesus said that it would be our love for one another that would be evidence of our discipleship and that our unity, the way that we live and interact in unity as one body, as one church, as one people is actually evidence that the father sent the son. Our unity, the way that we live together and love one another and operate together as one body is actually evidence that the father sent the son, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, Jesus said, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. Jesus said that the world can look at the church and that the logical implication of looking at the church and seeing the way the church lived is, I believe the gospel is true. I believe that God the Father sent God the Son to die for my sins. Now, I am willing to bet that you have never left a church gathering on a Sunday morning and said, that was so much better than anything Jesus ever did right? Or, or left and go, I'm so glad that Jesus isn't here right now. This is so much better without him. 
And I'm willing to bet that if you're here and you're not a believer, or you know people in the world that are not believers, that they rarely look at the church and see our unity and say, I believe that God the Father sent God the Son to die on the cross for my sins. It's difficult to reconcile, isn't it? I just read three incredible passages from the mouth of Jesus about who we are to be. And yet our experience probably looks a little bit different than what he said it should look like. If the church is the blood-bought, redeemed people of God, like we talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, these these messages are going to build on one another. I want to encourage you to go back to realitycarpenteria.com and listen to the message on the redeemed people of God. If we are the redeemed people of God, if we have been set free from slavery to sin and set free for good works, then why is this so hard? Why does it still feel like we're in bondage to something other than what Jesus desired for us? Why are people often frustrated with the church? And why are we unsatisfied with our experience in the church? I believe that one of the reasons that we get frustrated with the church or or are unsatisfied with our life in the church is because we believe that in our discontent, it's actually a sign that the church is unhealthy. We believe that because we experience frustration or because we experience uh, uh, there's still something to be desired, that it's obviously the church's fault. And sometimes churches are unhealthy and sometimes that's the truth. Sometimes it's true that uh, we are frustrated and hurt or, or angry because of unhealth in the church. That might be the case. But often... What we call an unhealthy church is actually evidence of our own unhealthy expectations of the church. See, there are some misconceptions that we have about the church that lead to um, some uh, frustrations with the church. We have these misconceptions that create expectations and then, and then we, we get frustrated when our expectations aren't met. And so today, I want to look at three misconceptions that many of us may have. Three misconceptions about the church and discover how the good news of Jesus corrects all of them. But before we get there, I want to encourage us that um, the New Testament church was not all that different than us. Okay, they had their own struggles with life in the church. The New Testament is a variety of, there are a variety of letters in the New Testament that were all written to churches who were undergoing their own uh, difficulties, their own experiences. There was, they were, uh, the, the apostles, they addressed sin in the church and they addressed um, how to relate to one another when there's extreme poverty, how to love one another, how to support one another. They address division in the church when the, the church couldn't seem to get their act together and were frustrated with each other. They addressed false teaching in the church. All of these things that exist in the church today and make church difficult also existed in the New Testament church. We have the tendency to look at the early church and go, it was so perfect then and then we've ruined it. No, we've always had the ability 
as fallen human beings to frustrate one another. New Testament church was not all that different. Letters like the book of Ephesians, which we're talking about today, were written to address all of these things. And in a few of the Apostle Paul's letters, Ephesians is one of those letters that Paul wrote, he uses the metaphor of a body to describe the way people in the church are to function. And so this is the metaphor that we see in our passage, that the church is a body. He says that it is one body, specifically that the church is the body of Christ. This is one of the primary ways we understand the church in the New Testament, that we are the body of Christ. And it's this truth that will be our primary tool to combat these false ideas, these misconceptions that we have about the church. So what are these misconceptions? Well, the first misconception that we have concerning the church is that membership is optional. Okay, now, if you've been a part of the reality family for a while, you know I just said a four-letter word. Membership. Okay, I was in a staff meeting here early on in my time, and I forget what we were talking about, but I remember saying something like, oh, this is for the members of the church, and like the looks on people's faces, and I was like, what's wrong? You, you said member. We don't have membership here. Okay, let me tell you what I'm talking about. Okay, historically, the reality family has not had contractual church membership. That means we don't have a roster of people who have attended some classes and checked some boxes and signed their name on a dotted line agreeing to be held accountable for a certain level of participation in attendance or serving or giving, right? There's no contractual membership. I'm never going to come to you and say, you signed the dotted line. Now do what you said you would do. Okay, that's contractual church membership, and we've not practiced that here. And the reason we've not practiced that here is because it's not in the Bible. Just, it's not. It's nowhere to be found in the New Testament. Are there any commands or any instructions for contractual church membership? There is a passage in 1 Timothy 5 that talks about keeping a roster of widows so that they wouldn't slip through the cracks and the church would be able to take care of those who were most vulnerable in their community. That's very different than contractual church membership, okay? But this doesn't mean necessarily that it's wrong for churches to have contractual church membership. It's not wrong. It's just not something commanded in Scripture, okay? It can be helpful. But one of the reasons we don't do that here at Reality, we don't have a roster of people that we keep in touch with and hold accountable and all of those things, is because of the dark side of that, which is fanning into flame this misconception. It actually communicates that it is possible to be a Christian and yet not a member of the church. And that's a misconception. Membership is not optional. Membership in the body of Christ is not optional. The church is the body of Christ. And the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you are given the Holy Spirit who unites you to Jesus, washes away your sins, cleanses you, makes you holy, unites you to Jesus, and you become a member of of the body of Christ. You become a member of the church, the capital C 
church, the universal church, all of the believers who would ever trust in Jesus in the world and throughout history, capital C church, the moment you believe, you become a member of the capital C church, the body of Christ, okay? Membership is not optional. You believe and you become a member. The question is not, are you a member of the church? The question is, are you a healthy member of the church? Okay, have you severed yourself from the body? Are you trying to go it alone? A Christian on their own is about as effective as a severed arm trying to do a pull-up. Okay, it's gross analogy. I get it, but it's gross It is offensive to think that a Christian can actually operate in health apart from the body. You cut off a part of your body, it will die. You sever yourself from the body of Christ, you are going to die. You are going to wither away. Your spirit will continue to grow weaker and weaker. Your relationship, you're going to slowly fade out. Okay? Just like a healthy body part has to be connected to the body, so does a healthy Christian needs to be connected to the body. Membership is not optional. So let me tell you how we think of membership, that dirty word in the reality family here. Okay? If you are a Christian and you are a participant in our Sunday gatherings, in our home groups, in the, the life of our church, I am going to treat you like a member because that's what you are. Okay? If you are a Christian and this is your church, I am going to treat you like a member. I don't need, the pastors don't need, the staff doesn't need a contract with your name on the dotted line to hold up the word of God and say, this is what it asks of you and hold you accountable to this. Okay, if you are a Christian and this is your church, we are going to treat you like a member because that is what you are. It's not optional. Um, The body of Christ does not have uh, to just continue to use this metaphor of the body, it does not have vestigial organs, right? Don't be an appendix in the body of Christ, right? I, I know that some people think that they know what the appendix used to be for in the past. When I was growing up and in, in school, teachers were like, we don't know what it was there for. We don't know if it ever did anything. But some of you know that the appendix is not inconsequential. Okay, some of you know that just because it might not have a daily function, it can rear its ugly head and cause some problems, right? Those of you who have had appendicitis know, one, how painful it is, and two, if you don't get it taken care of, it will blow up and kill you, okay? Don't be an appendix. Don't be the vestigial organ of the church that is present doesn't have a function, but the moment something goes wrong, you blow up and you hurt the body. Don't be that person, okay? If you are a Christian, then you are a member 
of Christ's own body. And every member is valuable. Every member has a function, has a purpose, has a God-given important role in God's church. Membership is not optional. It's not about whether or not you are a member, whether you are not, whether you are or not a healthy member. Okay, and this leads us to the next misconception. The idea that ministry is for professionals. Okay, when people think of ministry, they often think about what pastors and church leaders do. But what we should think about is what Christians do. Uh, How many of you have ever been members at a gym? Raise your hand. Okay, awesome. You're going to get this. You know the dude at the gym that only works one muscle group? They're usually in front of a mirror if they're not doing bench press. They're doing curls. You know that guy, right? Captain upper body, just jacked upper body, little tiny legs. It creates this imbalance in the body. Unfortunately, this is what most churches look like. 10% of the body does 90% of the work. Just like 90% of the time that dude's at the gym, he's on the bench press. Or looking at himself doing curls in the mirror. 10% of the body does 90% of the work. Don't treat pastors and deacons and other leaders in the church like the beach muscles of the church. They do all the work. We get to sit in the seats and just be entertained. Okay, it creates imbalance in the body. Our text says that God gave leaders to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to what? To equip the saints for the work of of ministry. Now, depending on what, uh, what theological tradition you come from, sometimes we think of saints as these uh, venerated uh, uh, people of the past that you see in stained glass and, you know, uh, in statues and, 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 and things like that. But think about that for a second. Let's say the word saint applies to all of these, you know, venerated uh, brothers and sisters in Christ of, of old. That would mean that what this text is saying is that people like me, who are a shepherd and a teacher, I exist to equip the venerated men and women of the church in the past. No, that's not what a saint is. A saint is you. A saint means holy one. It is someone who has the Holy Spirit who has been cleansed of their sin and made holy. When the, when the Bible talks about saints, it's saying Christians, you are holy ones. You are the saints. And so it is the job of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip you for the work of the ministry. Ministry is not my job. Ministry is your job. We talked about this last week, saved from, set free from Slavery to sin, set free for good works. You have been set free. You've been redeemed for good works, for ministry. 
The job of the leaders in the church is to come alongside you, help you to understand the gifts that God has given you, the opportunities for you, and empower you and encourage you to do the work of ministry. And so every member, membership is not an option, okay? It's expected. It's part of what it means to be a Christian, to be a member of the body of Christ, and every member is a minister. The question is not whether you are a minister, but whether you are a faithful minister, whether you are actively participating, engaged in the opportunities available to you as a brother or sister in Christ, as a member of Christ's body, are you engaged in the job that you are given to do? Each one of you has a gift that is to be used in service of the larger body. Now, this is not a sermon about spiritual gifts, but it is in this passage, and so I must address it. A spiritual gift, the gifts of the Spirit are manifestations of the Holy Spirit's presence and power in a believer. A spiritual gift is, it is the Spirit that is the gift, And the Spirit manifests His presence and power in your life through a variety of ways. And every Christian has a gift because every Christian has the same Spirit, but not every Christian has the same gift. Okay, everyone has a gift because everyone has the same Spirit. The Spirit is not divided. It's not like you've got a little bit of the Spirit and then I've got a little bit of the Spirit and then Pastor Nick definitely has more of the Spirit. It's not, this, God is not divisible, okay? We all have the same Spirit. We all have the Spirit of God. And because of that, we all have a gift, but we do not all have the same gifts. Just like not every member of a body has the same function. And so all of the gifts, regardless of which ones we have, are given for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, spiritual gifts are manifestations of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And the gifts that we have are given for building up the body of Christ. They're not for status. They're not for position. Right? They are not to create two categories of Christians. They are for serving. The gifts that you have are not given to you so that you can put your gift on a pedestal. They are given to you so that you can put your gift to work. They're not for status. They're not for position in the church. They're for building up the body of Christ, building up the church, encouraging one another, strengthening one another, serving one another. Now, there is debate in the church today whether or not the gifts of the Spirit are for today, okay? You might be familiar with this debate. One side will say that, yes, the gifts of the Spirit do still operate in the church today. Another side will say, no, they ceased to operate in the church when the apostles died. They'll say that it was only given to the apostles as a validation of the authority of their teaching. So they would go and teach something that people had never heard before, and then they could do signs and wonders, and that would be a sign to them that, no, If this power is from God, then their words are also from God. And so since 
the apostles are now dead. The gifts of the Spirit are not for today. And we have the New Testament. We have the completion of Scripture. And so we don't need these gifts. But I, I believe that the text that we're in today is, for me personally, this is the reason, Ephesians 4 is the reason that I believe that the gifts are for today and why as a church we continue to operate in that. Specifically because our text tells us what the gifts are for and when and how long we will need them. Okay, our text tells us that the gifts are for, in verse 12, for the building up of the body of Christ, not to validate the authority of the words of the apostles, for the building up of the body of Christ until, okay, until when? We have them for this purpose until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of, of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The gifts are given for building up the body of Christ until we are all mature in Christ, until we are all uh, uh, exuding the full measure of who Jesus is. Now, are we there yet? Do you think we still need the gifts? Do you think we still need to be built up and encouraged to walk Toward maturity? Absolutely. And Ephesians 4 tells us that the gifts are for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain maturity. This word, uh, the fullness of Christ is this idea of completion, fulfillment. Until we are completed, we need these gifts. And so our convictions concerning the gifts should come not from the presence or lack of presence of some ecstatic experience, but from God's word. We need them until we are mature. And so the church is in every member ministry. If reality is your church, then you are part of the body. Don't sever yourself from the body. And it's the very fact that we are not mature yet, we are not completed yet, we are not fulfilled yet, that leads us to correct our last misconception, which is that we believe that a perfect church is actually possible. We believe that a perfect church exists, and that's just wrong. It's not. A perfect church does not exist. And the, the problem with this is we go around from church to church and we experience a church and we might be immediately attracted by one aspect of the church and then we participate in that church for a while and then we realize that there's something not perfect about the church and it kind of frustrates us and we wish it was different. And then we compare it to that church over there and that church does this thing that frustrates me a little bit better. And so I'm gonna go to that church and I'm gonna participate in, in this church until I realize that there's this other thing that I don't like. And then we just jump from 
from church to church and, and we live as a severed part of the body, just getting grafted on to different bodies. And not only uh, are we making it more difficult for us to function, but now we're just hurting other bodies by jumping around and bouncing around and being a part of there. And now they've had a member of their body that they, they love and they, they, they participate with and they have unity with. And all of a sudden it's gone and then they're hurting and it's, they're thankful that maybe they're still at another church over here. But you see just what that does. It just, it just causes difficulty when we're constantly jumping around looking for a church that does this better or does that better. We end up treating the church like a day spa where we go there and we sign up for these packages. And if we don't get exactly what we want, then we jump on Yelp, we critique the, the church, and then we just go to a different one. And then this day spa over here has something different that I like. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, go, over, I'm gonna go over there. Okay, the idea of the body of Christ growing into maturity and attaining to the fullness of Christ means that one day we will be complete. One day we will be mature. But until then, our job is not to uh, uh, be served by the body of Christ, although that should be happening. Our job is to serve the body of Christ. Our job is to build one another up. Our job is to invest, not just receive. Receiving is important. You have to receive from God by his spirit to make you a part of the body before you can actually function as a part of the body. Receiving is important. But once we are in the body, once we are part of God's church, the body of Christ, our job is, is not just to show up. Our job is to invest. Our job is to build up. Our job is to serve all of us together, regardless of how imperfect we are. Okay, now look, we're an imperfect church. Okay, Reality Carpinteria, we are an imperfect church because we're made up of imperfect people. And that is how we will always be until the Lord returns. It doesn't mean that we give up and just stop pursuing God's will for us, stop building one another up, but it's just the reality. A perfect church doesn't exist, and we are not a perfect church, okay? We're broken in ways because we're made up of people who are broken in ways, but we're being healed and we're being transformed because we're made up of people who are being healed and, and being transformed. But these, these imperfections, this, this brokenness that exists within us, okay, is not a reason to withhold our participation. It's not a reason to withhold investment. In fact, I think it's actually the other way around. There's a story, I, I don't know if it's true. I've, I've heard it multiple times. I've read it multiple times. Sometimes the location changes. I don't know that it's true, but it's a good illustration. Apparently, there's a cathedral in it's either Germany or France or even like San Diego, depending on the stories that I've, I've, I've looked up. <laughs> Very different. Uh, there's a cathedral that in World War II was experiencing some bombing. I don't know how that plays out in San Diego, but... <laughs> 
It was getting bombed in World War II, and inside this cathedral, there's a statue of Jesus. And at some point, because of the shelling, a beam fell and, and broke off the hand, Jesus' outstretched hands. Fortunately, the rest of the statue remains somewhat intact. And so as the, the, the parishioners of this church were trying to decide what to do, there's a variety of different options and suggestions. One was to hire a new artist to uh, construct some hands and to have them attached back onto the statue. They wanted to repair the statue, but the, the congregation apparently decided something interesting. Instead of having it repaired, they placed a plaque on the bottom of the statue that quoted a poem from Teresa Avila that said, he has no hands but yours. And this is the remarkable truth, the profound truth that Paul is getting at when he calls us the body of Christ. Okay, what we do and where we go and what we say, how we engage with the world, how we disengage with the world is actually Jesus himself engaging or disengaging with the world. Now, I don't want that to lose its impact on us. Think about this for a second. This is what the New Testament talks about. This is what Jesus talks about, where he says that, that we will be one with him. Paul calls us the body of Christ, that as we function together, we are actually, uh, as many of us have heard the phrase, the hands and feet of Jesus. How the church participates in the world is actually Christ himself participating in the world. A great example of this is the book of Acts. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and in his introduction, he's speaking to Theophilus, and he says, In my first work, the Gospel of Luke, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that the book of Acts, who does not include the, the, the presence, the physical presence of Jesus on earth after the first chapter, is about all that Jesus would continue to do and teach through the church. And so the way we serve one another, the way we love one another, the way that we minister to the community around us and, 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 and proclaim the gospel and demonstrate the love of Jesus to this world is actually Jesus himself working in us and through us. We are his body and individually members of it, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12. And we have the tendency of looking at the church and seeing all the brokenness and seeing that we, we look like that statue in that hypothetical cathedral in Germany. Broken. We're broken. We're incomplete. There's, there's, we've been wounded. We're sick. We, we don't function the way, we don't look the way that the artist or the creator intended us to look, but this brokenness is not an excuse to bail, and it's not an excuse to sit on the sidelines. Here's the truth. We can correct all of these misconceptions that we're talking about. And everyone in our, our midst can be using all of their gifts to serve the church every single week, and the church will still be broken. Because we're still broken. 
You can't add sinner to sinner and expect less sin. It doesn't work that way. We're a room full of sinners. There's going to be sin. There is going to be brokenness. We'll still struggle to be the church that God's word says that we should be because we're still struggling to be the people that God said we should be. We're still broken. We're a broken body of Jesus, but that shouldn't stop us from engaging because, listen, think about this. If we are a broken body of Jesus, what did God do through the broken body of Jesus? See, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. And this bread was a picture of what his body would go and do just hours later. He'd be beaten, mocked, wounded, pierced, crucified, died and was disregarded as just an imposter Messiah. Look, the world will look at the church and even people who are raised in the church will eventually look at the church and they will see the brokenness. They will see the woundedness. They will see the scorn and the shame and they will disregard you as an imposter truth, an imposter church. They will look and they'll say, I was told all of these things were true, but it was a lie because look at their brokenness. And Jesus, because of his brokenness, his physical brokenness, his death, he was rejected because messiahs don't die. Messiahs live, they reign, they, they're victorious, they're conquerors, they save through power and might and, and victory. And so Jesus, because of his brokenness, was disregarded. Just another imposter claiming to be somebody. But we know that in his death, our sins are forgiven. And by his blood, we are cleansed from unrighteousness. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Broken, defeated, disregarded the most unlikely scenario for a Messiah brings about the most unlikely result for you and I, that in his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. And so through the broken body of Jesus, God accomplished salvation and made it available to the world. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And you're fearful of, of, of putting your faith, or you're, I don't even say fearful, you're just resistant. You're resistant. Uh, uh, you, you don't want to put your faith in Jesus because you've had a rough experience with the church. Maybe it was a church from your childhood, or maybe, maybe you know someone that's a Christian and doesn't look anything like Jesus. And you're like, imposter, broken weak, sinful, not anything different 
than any of us. And you're tempted to write it off. And you're tempted to write faith in Jesus off because of the brokenness that you see. You see its failures and and the church's flaws. And so you stay away. Or maybe you're here and you are a Christian, but you're fearful or you're resistant to engage, to fully step into your calling as a member of the body of Christ because you feel like either you're not needed or you're not mature enough, you don't know enough, you haven't been equipped enough, or you're, you're not quite ready to take that other foot out of the world yet, and, and you're, you, know, you know you're living a double life, and so you're kind of straddling this line, and you're like, I can't be all in for Jesus because I can't seem to get my foot out of, of the world yet, and, and you're, you're resistant to being all in because it's scary. It is. Do I really want to make this my whole identity? Knowing the way the world talks about the church, knowing the way even some of the Christ, some Christians I know talk about the church. Do I really want to be all in on something that the world keeps telling me is failed and flawed and broken and, 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 and struggling and, and at times sick and divided? Do I really want to be a part of this? And you're, you're resisting being all in for Jesus because you know that the community of people you'll be associated with are us. You don't, you don't want that. You certainly don't want that for your whole identity. Okay, so you're resistant. I want to invite both of you, the non-Christian and the Christian, to consider the value of embracing the weakness the brokenness, the seeming foolishness of all of this. Because listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, this is the way God has always worked. He told Israel Don't think for a moment that God chose you because you're great. No, he chose you because you're the least of the nations. God didn't choose you because of your righteousness. No, God chose you because you are a stubborn and stiff-necked people. God chooses the weak things of the world because it's in our weakness, it's in our brokenness that God's light and God's glory and God's goodness can be seen. God doesn't choose you because you're amazing. God chooses you because he's amazing. Don't look at the weakness and the brokenness in your own life and see that as an excuse to not operate as a member of the body of Christ. Don't look at the weakness and the brokenness and the seeming foolishness of the body of Christ in the church and see that as an excuse to disregard Jesus. He can use anyone with a willing heart to do incredible things. He saved the world through a guy who died. 
because he rose from the dead and has given all who would believe that same victory over death. Not because you can do amazing things, but because he can do amazing things in you and through you. You don't need to be any different than you are right now to be valuable to the body of Christ, to be a valuable member of his body. You don't need to be any different than you are right now, but I promise you that if you engage as a member of the body of Christ, you will become something different. You will be transformed. You will be changed. Your heart's motives will be purified. You'll even be more aware of the gifts that God has given you. If you humbly submit yourself to engage, to build up the body of Christ in whatever opportunities are available to you. And you know what? If there isn't an opportunity available to you, make one. We will be more effective because you know the needs that we don't see. You don't need the church's permission to function like a member of the body of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. Serve, contribute, engage, build one another up. And as you do, you will begin to look more like Jesus. As the Holy Spirit transforms your heart, you will begin to look more and more like Jesus. This is why Jesus could say, in one passage, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me will never walk in darkness. And in another passage, he tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. Is Jesus confused? What is it? Is Jesus the light of the world or are you the light of the world? Yes. Because as we operate as the body of Christ, God's glory and God's light and God's power works in us and through us. And when the church is engaged in the world and the world experiences the church, we're told they're actually experiencing Jesus. You are the light of the world because you are the body of Christ and Jesus is the light of the world. So don't be afraid to participate in the body of Christ or to serve the body of Christ just because you are aware of its brokenness or your brokenness. It might actually be through those weaknesses, through those cracks and flaws that God wants his glory to be seen. Just as it was seen in Christ's greatest moment of agony what would have been Christ's greatest defeat had he not been Savior and Lord and God. But in his brokenness, he brought about healing for everyone who would receive him. And through your brokenness, he can make that healing made known. Heavenly Father, we ask that right now, God, you would convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, as your word says, Holy Spirit, that is what you do in us, that you would convict us. But also that you would comfort us. But many times I know in my own life, I don't want to put myself out there because I feel inadequate 
insignificant or undeserving. And God, ultimately in my flesh, I am. Insignificant, unable, undeserving. And yet, God, you chose each one of us in our weakness to be vessels of your glory. And so, Holy Spirit, in this time right now that we have to respond to these truths, God, I pray that you would cause such overwhelming gratitude to well up in us that you have saved us because you are good. Not because you need us, but because you choose to work in the world through us, God. Stir up in our hearts gratitude. God, stir up in our hearts thanksgiving. Stir up in our hearts rejoicing. God, I pray also that during this time you would empower us to make really important decisions about you and about life. God, for those who are on the fence, you would draw them near to yourself, that they would know your goodness, that they would know that they're safe with you. God, to those who are resisting their membership duties, so to speak. God, I pray that you would give them such a vision of what's possible with souls that are sold out for Jesus and loving one another. And God, most of all, I pray that as the body of Christ, we would be able to lift our voices and our hearts to you in, in holiness, in purity, in joy, and that we would be able to worship you with the power of the Spirit and declare your praise in a way that is worthy of who you are. Holy Spirit, come and have your way in this place. Heal your body. Empower your body. For the glory of Jesus. Amen.